At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Book Riot Podcast. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. You, I you're still not the used to it yet. Of our you're first still story. not used to doing this yet. What do I have to do to get... After I'm my just, name, oh. you say your name. I'm just over here opening tabs, looking at LeVar Burton, getting ready to do my job and forgetting to introduce yeah, you myself. You do do the jobs in order. Your first job is to say your name on the podcast intro. I am Rebecca Shinsky. We, we are go. not going to edit that intro. No, it's staying in. Because, you know, let that be a lesson to you. I know. Last week when I had Vanessa on, I just got to run through the like, I'm Rebecca Shinsky and I'm here with Vanessa. Yeah. I was like, oh, right. I don't have to wait. Catch my cue here. <laughs> when I have said my name, you say your, you don't even say, you could <laughs> you just know, say Rebecca Shinsky and I would give you credit at this point. <laughs> just Rebecca Shinsky. Yeah. Just like I'm announcing myself on a weird Zoom call. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's when you were filling out your, um, your uh, uh, voicemail that the AI is going to fill in the rest right. of it. In any yes. way, today is Thursday, February 22nd, 2024, coming to you from bookriot.com. Today, we're going to talk about National Book Awards opening up to non-U.S. citizens, uh, the aforementioned LeVar Burton book deals, book band stuff. We have an occasion to talk about Marilyn Robinson. I snuck in, I don't know if you saw, a story about KKR talking more oh, about its plans yes. to sell or not sell SNS. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the publishing industry still doesn't understand private equity, and I'm, I'm not saying that I am. I'm not saying that you know I wrote Barbarians at the Gate or something like this. Um, <laughs> but that people thought this story was over and is not. That SNS was going to be, mm-hmm. you know, Warren Buffett, KKR is not. They're, he's not. They're not going to hold on to it like seize candies for 60 years um, while they right. live in their split level in Omaha. So I thought it was worth revisiting now that the smoke has cleared a little bit. To think about the future of SNS, I also want to talk about book sales for a minute. For the year to date, okay. um, I don't, I don't have a link. I wrote down a couple of notes, and I'm not even sure where I saw it. So maybe, I guess it was Publishers Weekly. So that's what the show is going to be doing today. I don't know that we have, a, I don't have a lot of follow up. Um, we did our first, I didn't either. Our second, uh, well, I guess it was our second mailbag for the Patreon. But this time we also had some recon- recommendation requests. Thank you so much for those who got in there on the comments to a couple of those on the Patreon and gave yes. their own reflections and everything else. Super like that. fun. Uh, good to see. If you haven't checked out the Patreon, go do that. I guess relatedly, coming up, um, we're going to record later today the next Patreon episode, which is the next edition of Deals, Deals, Deals. Uh, I was one of my favorites this morning. Combing through, I had tabbed some things, bookmarked some tweets, like it's uh, mm. 2017 out here. <laughs> um, so wow, brave! For those of you who haven't listened to Deals, 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 there'll be a preview in the in the feed for 
for those of you to get in a moose bouche about what that's going to be like, um, I basically collect notable deal information and then say them at Rebecca, and then we react, I guess. Um, this is not most anticipated. This is not the best of. This is not Power Ranking, Heat Watch, It Book, any of the synthetic uh, structures that I, we, and the internet have created to, to put books in a latticework to talk about things that aren't yet. This is, the, the parameters for this are, huh, or better. <laughs> Right. Someone got a book deal, and we have a few things to say about There's that. something to say about it. Um, <laughs> so it's always fun. It's a little more loose than when we do a typical mm-hmm. ranking or, or list or something like that. Yeah. So It is so fun. And we've been doing them long enough now that like some of the books that you first told me about during a Deals, Deals, yeah. Deals episode have come out, and we've read them, and we've talked about them together, and that's fun to kind of run that whole cycle. I would say our matric- matriculation rate on actually reading things that I mentioned here is, what, 10 12%? Like, this is not even like we're going to read them. Sometimes oh, it's notable for some reason, yeah. or weird, or... Oh, yeah, or I'd be surprised if it's 10%. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, lots of fun. Um, It's this is probably is this the most insidery thing we do regularly talk about books that Mm. are coming out for two years that may or may not ever come out (laughs) that we may forget exist. If you maybe from using those parameters, it is because occasionally folks will be like, can you drop links to those books? And I'm like, there aren't any. There's hard links. Yeah. Most of them don't have landing pages on their publishers' websites yet. Typically, they don't even have publication dates at the time the deal is being announced. It's just this publisher has agreed to buy this book and make it into a thing. Uh, So we will get these somewhere between 18 months and three years from now, typically. Um, From that side, it's pretty insidery. But then there's the stuff we do where we're like, like what we're going to do later this year, where we're going to read something that's been out for 30 Uh, or 40 years, like the remains of the day and watch the movie and talk about it. And that's more of like a book nerd thing, not so much inside baseball. Um, But that's the the flavor of the Patreon is like a couple notches deeper into the book cave than than this feed. So always fun to see. Stick around for that. You can check out First Edition, Better Living for Books, the Book Ride Podcast newsletter. All the links are in the show notes there. And we're going to do a sponsor break and actually talk about the things we were just saying we're going to talk about (laughs) right now. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, The Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. 
haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet, we dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Um... The National Book Awards has, I don't, I don't think followed suit is exactly right, but it's not exactly wrong. Um, the National Book Awards, really since Lisa Lucas was in charge of it several years ago, yes. has been doing things to broaden the parameters for who is eligible. Um, I guess technically it's the books that are judged, but the people that are eligible. That's a kind of a weird distinction. I never really put it in that way before. Oh, look at this giant James Patterson ad on the New York Times. Sorry, that's talking. <laughs> uh, we can talk about that in a second. Um, and I guess the quickest way to summarize this is if you live, if your body resides primarily in the United States, you can win a National Book Award. Is that it? I mean, I'm not sure what else to say about that. Yeah, they've just expanded it beyond citizenship is no longer required. You just need to mostly live here. Uh, And this follows the Pulitzers announcing last year that beginning with the 2025 prizes, permanent and longtime residents of the United States would be eligible for the awards. So, yeah, I was kind of having the same thoughts about um, is it following? I don't know that it's following suit. Following suit kind of has a negative to neutral connotation and the thing here is this is great they're getting on board with progress that's being made um this piece also notes that the academy of american poets and the poetry foundation have expanded their prizes to include poetry by immigrants who have temporary legal status in the u.s this is a thing that we're doing we are thinking more expansively about what it means to be a work of american literature and to be a writer of american literature and so our 
governing, not governing, the uh, award-giving bodies are expanding those definitions as well. Um, the Academy of the American Poets and the Poetry Foundation are also expanding their prize to have mm-hmm. similar um, parameters. I guess, yeah, following. I think following suit, I was struggling to find a better term. I think all of them are operating under the same penumbra of shame about having not done this before. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. Um, Responding to social pressure, certainly. I think it's social pressure, but I also think these, again... You and I have this working theory that people that work these kinds of jobs or middle management jobs in publishing have basically the same, to a first approximation, cultural and political initiative, ideas, ambitions, and thoughts yes. that we do, right? And usually- yeah, the industry leans liberal. Leans liberal. Yeah. And you and I leave. Are we more liberal than a marketing manager at Harper Via? I don't think so, actually, anymore, um, as I've gotten older yeah, and they've gotten younger, specifically. But legacy stuff, bureaucracy bureaucracy no one's minding the store there's a lots of reasons that someone does some someone hasn't an organization hasn't done something yet they would like to do that things are right mm-hmm. and they do it now and I, I don't think it has to be pressure necessarily then oh wait we're in charge ain't no one's gonna come right. and say you can't open it up pulitzer <laughs> prizes or the national yeah, book the Foundation. pressure can come from inside the go. house That's and right. i think it does. it does in a lot of these cases it is folks who you know just as you were saying, share similar values to what we're doing at Book Riot and are looking for, like you're you're working for the National Book Foundation oh. because you care about the place of literature in American society. And you're, you're thinking about what that can mean in a way that's you know, part of the National Book Award's mission is to expand awareness and access to literature, to get more people reading. And so thinking about acknowledging a broader conception of American writers is part of that. These are big organizations. They have young donors. They have Mm. old donors. Mm -hmm. They have rich people to contend with. They have PR concerns, both real and imagined. Uh, It's bureaucracy. And the larger the organization, the longer it takes typically to make a significant change in any kind of direction. Um, So I think you're right that they are responding to shame, probably some of it coming from inside the house about why have we not gotten to this place sooner, but they are finally able to make these changes. And at this point, just glad to see it happen. Um, I have a lot of, you know, we've, we've talked before about, you know, sympathy for the machine and it's not so much, it's not letting anybody off the hook, but these are big organizations that have a lot of stakeholders who have a lot of different priorities and to try to make everybody happy and make progress happen and not lose your funding is that's not an easy needle to thread. It's never too late to do the right thing. Never too soon either. I should say here at the same time, also Mm -hmm. weirdly bringing just their own rules and eligibility alignment because apparently the journalism awards were open to non-citizens if their work was published by a U.S. media company. Oh, interesting. So that's pretty okay, strange too. I would imagine most of most, if not all, of the books considered for the National Book Awards going back in time were published by American publishers. So there was some, I guess, um, non-equal treatment. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. Again, that could just be legacy stuff that someone yeah. didn't think to write it into the journalism award by rules back in I 1911 would... or something like mm-hmm. that. That's very possible. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it was accidental inclusion um, rather than uh, intentional, uh, intentional ones. Yeah. So there's that. I, you know, is that going to change the, the winners? Maybe. Um, well, there'll be different kinds of people on there. I think you know, Javier Zamora, we talked about his memoir, yes. Solito. 
um, when I first read that, I didn't even consider, didn't even think to think no, about eligibility yeah. for prizes because I, I, I had the thought that it would be up for end of the year awards and there's different kinds at different, but was ineligible for paperwork reasons. Right. And mm-hmm. um, if, if art exists to do anything, it is to transcend paperwork, I would say. Right. And so thankfully, <laughs> that's happening now. <laughs> yeah, it may not change the awards, but it could. And it's that possibility that's important, I think. Yeah. Um, speaking of people that have changed the world of books, LeVar Burton has ascended to a secular saint of reading in mm-hmm. the United States. I don't know what kind of profile he has in Canada or beyond in the Anglophone or, or non-Anglophone world for that matter. But certainly, if you were to drop a list of 10 reading, living reading icons. Again, I, the reading icon is a weird thing to say because there's lots of writers that are readers, of course. LeVar Burton is not mm-hmm. known primarily as a writer. I'm not even sure he's known primarily as a book lover now because he's had an act. I mean, he's Kunta Kinte and, and Jordi LaForge, for God's sake. But, right. you know, he doesn't act all that much anymore and has turned his attention because of Reading Rainbow, um, which if you're a longtime listener, you show, no, that relationship has been fraught. I wonder where LeVar and the double R stand right now. What kind of detente <laughs> they, they are in right now. Um, and uh, what kind of tea is he willing to spill about it? Not much. Not when you have two giant book deals coming out. You are playing it close to the vest <laughs> because you want to get picked up. You want NPR, Minnesota, whoever controls it, uh, the rights to Reading Rainbow, to oh, at, right, at least yeah. not be um, an antagonist to you. Signed a two-book deal with Pantheon. Speaking of Lisa Lucas, uh, two shouts for for uh, L Squared today, um, who is the... <laughs> Publisher, executive editor, I don't know what her title is, of uh, Pantheon Books over at Random House. Um, The first book coming in 2026, a memoir on how to be your authentic self. Okay, this is my least exciting (laughs) phrase in book. I don't care who it is. Um, (laughs) uh, What if your authentic self is a dillweed? That's my always question about this. The second book on importance of reading will follow in 2028. Now we're talking. Um, I don't know why one before the other. Uh, we're many years mm-hmm. away. I would imagine this is going to be a f- medium-ish to large deal, Rebecca. You, yeah. you've met LeVar Burton in the flesh. You have a selfie with him. So I did. You, you basically are a resident Burton expert. The side of my face touched the side of his face. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's not surprising to me that one of these and the first of them is an inspirational how-to memoir that is kind of the lane LeVar Burton occupies. It's also a low-friction lane for a celebrity who historically has at least avoided controversy and friction. Like He got salty when he was hosting the National Book Awards this year, making some jokes about Moms for Liberty, and that was especially satisfying, not just because Moms for Liberty deserves all of the saltiness that anybody can muster, but because LeVar Burton, like, he's had good media training and he remembers what they told him. (laughs) Like, this is a very well-managed image. And so, uh, like, how to be your authentic self, sort of, uh, like, Michelle Obama-style workbook memoir uh, is a thing that makes sense to me for him. What I would like is a no-holds-barred LeVar Burton, like, after dark. Really tell the stories. I hope that he will go to that place. He's 67. 
You know, if you're going right. to like let yourself, you know, off the hook and have a little free reign uh, to really tell those stories, he's experienced quite a lot. Um, and being a very famous, very recognizable black man in this country in several decades where that was even more difficult than it is right now. What do you think the cultural conversation around Roots was when he was... I mean, can you imagine now oh. what he had to go through and what people were saying? The internet didn't oh, exist. Man. Can you, like, yeah. That's a good... I cannot imagine. That would be an amazing, like... Someone should do a, um alternate history where some mm. for some reason there was Twitter in 1968. <laughs> Now we get discourse on things. Like, that, you know, what what would yeah. have been like? Hippies are out there blasting mm. tweets. Well, what would that look like? I have no idea. Anyway, how would history have changed? Yeah. But you can only imagine that the racial politics today are, I think it's fair to say, evolved since then. Long ways to go, so on yes. and so forth. But he had that experience of playing a, this hard to remember now, it was a broadcast, multi-part, made-for-TV adaptation <laughs> of... Roots with like probably I would have to imagine at the time there had been no broader, more realistic depiction of slavery in the American public than before Roots. It has yeah. to be the case. It's, what would it have been? It's pretty shocking that that got it made. It really is shocking from where we're sitting right now. An oral history of uh, Roots is definitely been... something I'd read on Vulture. So get on that. Oh Absolutely. yes, yeah. So I think this will be interesting. I, I think the mm-hmm. for the book world one, the reading focus book could be interesting. But on the importance of reading, that could be the most anodyne twill. You know, I don't know what, what that could be. I don't know it's going to be exciting. It's hard to do that with any kind of, say, something that hasn't been you said can, a million times. Right, especially with the proliferation of, like, the New York Times has the buy the book column. Yeah. Van- I think it's Vanity Fair has something similar. The Guardian has a version of this where authors talk about the books that shaped them. We've done podcasts right. around it. Like this is a familiar kind of content because it's fun and interesting and people like to know what their favorite writers and celebrities are reading. But like to get a whole book's worth of material out of it, I do think you have to go some places because the things that books the role that books play in our lives and the ways that they can change us are really personal, can be challenging, and that hits you at the deepest place. It's like you have to kind of go to the vul- the vul- ugh, vulnerable is not mm-hmm. wanting to come out of my mouth today. You have to go to that place um, to talk about what books have meant to you if it's going to do something other than be, you know, like a yay books reading is nice kind of thing. And that's, I think, what I and maybe the reading public have been wanting from LeVar Burton is like you are very important and very recognizable and he has played a lot of significant roles both on screen and just in the world of activism around reading like you can really have some teeth now and some of the things that he said um, in the announcements of these books make me inclined to I don't know think or hope that he's ready to go there he says you know this is my opportunity to go on record to weigh in I have earned the respect of this nation and I've earned the right to speak my piece not simply because of what I've done but simply because I am here Um, and he's got weight and he's got heft and he has earned the right to you know take up this space and have our attention and say whatever it is that he has to say and so i really hope that he will do it um i want this to be something more than a pat like yay for books reading is important message yeah should be interesting to see um but we're certainly getting at the levar burton tour speaking of tours um i'm tipping my front this way <laughs> look at you bit. 
Uh, no, I'm, I'm going back and forth in time. Um, I'm, I'm going to okay. rest Twitter away from the hippies and come back to the present moment for a second. Um, Leslie Jameson's publicist is murdering it, by the way. There have been mm-hmm, so many mm-hmm. pieces. Everything, every place that could have a Leslie Jameson profile, <laughs> interview, excerpt, essay has done it. And I don't think when we talked about it, I'm sure we came up in multiple of our previews. I don't think we talked about as, is Leslie Jameson going to break out? I don't think I was thinking in those terms. I wasn't either. But I feel like maybe it could happen. Have you started? Have yeah. you read it? Have you started? Where are you? Are, oh, I read it. Yeah, I oh, talked about it on Frontless Play. Oh, that's Play right. That's right. Right, 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 right. It's great. I'm a little into it. It is great. So uh, I'm wondering. Past Jeff and Rebecca, I think maybe should have had an inkling that this might break her out because the things yes. she's written about before have been both niche and kind of heady. And nothing is more grounded and relatable than people have messy relationships. Right. And here's the story of mine. Yeah. Nobody is better at human mess than Leslie Jameson is. Um, I would love for this to be her breakout. Also, notably, Liz Lenz's divorce memoir slash manifesto, which is called This American Ex-Wife, came out on the same day earlier this week as Leslie Jameson. You hate to see it if you're them. Except... They don't seem to be like canceling each other out. They seem oh, really? to be at this one seems to be additive in the media that I've seen. It's mm. like if you need to read one divorce book, maybe you need to read two. Here you go. You know, so good for that. I don't know what the canon of divorce memoirs is. Um, I've read a several. I've read a bunch of them recently, and some of them got mixed up with COVID and baby ring stuff. And I don't know how. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like Splinters is very COVID forward, which thankfully is. Good, because that, no, that part yeah. of my reading it's tongue not. is numb at this point. Um, but interesting to see, and, and I wonder, because for a while, the food memoir was under I, I, under-saturated. It's not the word. Mm-hmm. But then it got oversaturated. We'd even talked about, I need a hook on a fe- food memoir now. You can't be like a chef and like, here's my life as a cook. It's like, I need something right. else besides to get interested about that. And I wonder how much longer the... I feel like you have to do something different now with a divorce book. Is, Le- is Leslie Jameson's writing a divorce mm-hmm. memoir? You know, I don't know that if Glennon Doyle doesn't do Love Warrior six years ago, there's a lot of like, this is an exciting book anymore. Uh, for yeah, and it's interesting. Book. Like the Glennon Doyle of it all is kind of how these things start. Like yes. the Glennon Doyle version of a divorce memoir is the inspirational, I survived this, so can yeah, you. No reservations. Spin. No and, reservations of divorce memoirs. Right. Yeah, and then Leslie Jameson is sharper and deeply personal, kind of warts and all, here's the gross stuff. And Liz Lenz's spin on it is kind of memoir, but more structural criticism of the institution of marriage. Like She talks about her marriage, she talks about her ex, but she situates all of it inside, let's look at the history of marriage, heterosexual marriage, especially in America, um, what this has meant for gender politics, what it has meant for the oppression of women, what the ways that even a good marriage today um, can continue to be a source of oppression for women, and like why should straight people, especially straight women, continue to get married um, when we have all of these you know, other options that are available to us. And she's really arguing for that, that yeah. heterosexual marriage is like is a source of misery uh, for many people who enter into the institution and that even a miserable marriage benefits the man in it in a way that it does not benefit the woman. Um, 
and is specifically taking on hetero marriage addresses some of the other things but those feel that feels like a progression to me if you get like the inspirational Glennon Doyle version you get the Leslie Jameson like literary philosophical thoughtful take and then now we also have these sort of structural critiques of the institution itself Yeah, I you know a good um, a future idea for a Patreon episode for us is name the seven authors you would least like to hear is writing a book about the topic you are currently writing about, and I oh. would put Leslie Jameson up there. <laughs> oh, you have to do for some, any of them. Uh, yeah, yeah, for just yes. I don't care what the topic is. Uh, at that, I think I put Isabel Wilkerson up there. Michael Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, <laughs> if you, yeah. Mukherjee for some reason wanted to write oh. about I don't know <laughs> the history of the world in seventeen books. I get, I don't even know what book I'm theoretically writing. I don't want Mukherjee anywhere close to what I'm doing um, at this particular Mm-mm. point. But Jemison's up there. Anyway, that's a preview of my front list for you. And I'm doing that in Book and Love right yeah, now. And I'm, I'm, not five, I'm not through with either. Yeah, I'm just in early days of Book of Love, too. I'm really curious what Leslie Jameson will do next. That was my like, next this question could be for the, you. Yeah, like this could be the breakout. And then to stay broken out, she would need to stay in more mainstream subjects of concern. She could still do it the Leslie Jameson way. She'd have way. to Brene Brown it to some way. She's going to speak on stages with a head mic about finding your oh. true self crap. That's She's not going to do no. that, is she? I don't no, think No, no. I don't think I need her to break out to Brene Brown, Glennon Doyle levels of broken out. No. Just to like more, let's let her sell some more books. You know, and like not be quite as niche. You know, the empathy exams is so wonderful. And the uh, her memoir about getting sober, also really wonderful. Uh, But this is, you know, highly relatable. And it's just like, well, once you've gone highly relatable, you either go much nichier, like you go back into the cave, make your money from your highly relatable story. And now you can underwrite getting weird again. And man, I like Leslie Jameson in weird mode, so I wouldn't hate that. I agree. Um, But I I, agree. Yeah. I would prefer for her to just like make a lot of money on this and then go back into weirdness. Personally. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I have some sense of her from reading her books and reading the press, and she seems like a pretty odd person. Um, I mean, in a, in a good mm-hmm. way, um, and maybe not as uh, tempted by the, the filthy lucre of the speaking engagement tour. <laughs> yeah, from what she reveals about her life in Splinters, I don't know that there are like a lot of other angles of it that yeah. she could make into something right. that's a super mainstream accessible yeah. spin and that's great continue getting interested in weird stuff and, please go down those and the people holes. that did this like you know the that the went from a book that broke out that resonated with people to become a notional guru of some kind or lifestyle yeah. whatever they don't write sentences none of them ain't none of them write sentences yeah, no. like leslie and jameson or be care as much about there's... writing sentences like leslie jameson I don't think there's much Leslie Jameson wants less than to be a guru of anything. No, so. if she tried to and it fell apart and then wrote a memoir about that, I would read that <laughs> memoir. That's like the inverse of that sure I'll join your cult yes. memoir that was out last year. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, I would I would read that. She likes to follow, you know, interesting ideas uh-huh. and sort of outsidery stuff. And I like 
following her there. So I, I want to see that. Continue. I'm not sure where we were. We were talking about LeVar Burton and breaking, oh, breaking out, right. Breaking out in, in publicity campaigns. Oh, yes. That's what got me here. Yeah. Somewhat strangely, but uh, there we are anyway. But here we are. Yeah. My last, I think, Leslie Jameson thought is like, there's almost no more mainstream experience than becoming a parent and getting a divorce. Like I've got a friend who, when somebody is, you know, freaking out to announce that they're pregnant, she'll be privately like, congratulations, you're doing the same thing everyone yeah, else has yeah, done yeah, for like yeah, all yeah. of history. Right. <laughs> and so it's hard to make a, a memoir about that those experiences that are so common, interesting and fresh and new. And that's really what she's done here. Um, let's take a m- much, much dreaded and frequent return visit to book banning hellscape um, lane. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a cul-de-sac we cannot seem to get out of at this point. This is West Virginia. The House of Delegates has passed legislation lifting criminal liability exemptions from schools and the presentation of local or state-approved curriculum in public libraries and museums displaying obscene matter to a minor when the child is not accompanied by a parent or guardian. This, we are now approaching the reducto ad absurdum that you and I pro- mm-hmm. said, well, the slippery soap argument is something like this. And yeah. you know what? It turned out the slope was greased and oiled, and people are ready at the top of it to push this stuff down. Um, it, the bill will go to the Senate, and I am, as you know, not an expert in the civic governance of the state of West Virginia. Probably there's a governorship thing that must happen as well. Basically, if something obscene matter, which usefully is extremely easy to identify, define, and isn't all prone to manipulation or abuse by those who seek to do ill... <laughs> means if you display it to a minor, you could be charged with a felony up to $25,000 and five years in the clink, which seems reasonable to me, Rebecca. This seems fine. I don't know why we're not doing this already, so nothing else to say. Yeah, Yeah, just these very usefully vague definitions of obscenity (laughs) that rely on things a reasonable person would determine to be obscene and I mean, given that nothing else about this sounds reasonable, I don't have a whole lot of faith in the judgments that might be made there. Um, I'm not, like you, super familiar with West Virginia's state politics. West Virginia does have a Republican governor. Um, Hard to imagine that he's going to come out swinging (laughs) against this. We'll see what happens in the West Virginia State Senate. Um, Really interesting to track this trend that we've been talking about, where you have some states doubling down and getting ready to send librarians to prison at the same time that other states are actively putting measures in place to prevent book bans from happening at all. Um, Not surprising, given how polarized the red state, blue state conversation has become and just increasingly polarized over the last eight years, but this book banning conversation over the last two or three. I continue to think this is a losing issue. Yeah. it's just how long will they be able to like to skate by on passing some of these things uh, before the big losses kick in? It says uh, Brandon Steele, the introducer of this bill, says um, what this does is tear down the sanctuary for conduct that all of us have agreed for over 100 years is criminal. If it is illegal <laughs> in the parking lot, it should be illegal in the building. So I don't know what the hell we're talking about here. Can give no examples of specific cases in, under which someone would be prosecuted by this. 
I don't think this mm-hmm. is actually about getting anyone anywhere or anyone to no. pay a fine. This is just to scare the shit out of librarians so they yes. don't put stuff by queer people on the shelves. That's what this is. That's all this is. Yeah, it's to continue trying to equate any representation of queer identity or discussion of sexual identity with pornography to continue to present librarians and educators as groomers and sexual abusers and notably Brandon Steele. And if that's not a supervillain name, yeah. Jeff, I don't know what is has provided no zero big old goose egg <laughs> examples of someone committing similar acts in state libraries. Yeah. So this is it, like a straw man to the nth degree. Um, Delegate Mike Pushkin, a Democrat, offered an unsuccessful amendment Friday that would have kept in place criminal liability protections for teachers, citing examples of, say, health teachers who provide instruction in sex education. The amendment failed by one voice, oh, by voice vote. I'm not so sure who the arbiter of what is obscene and what isn't, Pushkin said. That makes sure we're not going to penalize teachers simply for teach. But here's the thing, Mike Pushkin, they don't want people to teach sex education. Exactly. They're not like, oh, you're right, they Mike. Don't want that what if what if we show someone what a cervix is? We can't throw them in jail, can we? No, they do not want you to know where all the parts are, or where they go, or the any manner of any manners of which you could put them to use for the pleasure of yourself or others. Um, sucks, hate it, the worst. May your yeah. efforts fail. May your efforts fail. Um, ALA ad- releases book resumes to help fight book bans. I think we saw someone talking about this before. I linked to a tweet in Today in Books last week that every library did the math on what it would take to actually have humans review the context of all the books published Mm. in a year to give them ratings. Uh, Let me just say we're sort of in an infinite timeline with infinite monkeys on infinite typewriters situation. (laughs) It's absurd. It's absurd. This is – the ALA is trying to give – I think this is understandable, wrong-headed – and doomed to fail at the same time. All these things, much like what was we were talking about. Um, uh, anyway, it doesn't matter. The idea is like, can we can we give some kind of seal of content so that librarians and teachers don't have to do all the work themselves, and that it, you know we can give a parent or a teacher or a librarian basically a, a an abstract or a one sheet or an executive summary. Um, that summarize the significance, the value, reviews, basically saying this deserves to be here, I guess. It's it's basically a stamp saying this deserves to be here no matter what you might think of that one scene on page 71 in which someone kisses somebody that isn't their same gender. Or maybe even kisses anybody at all. I wouldn't be so surprised if they're trying to get all this crap. Um. It's not gonna. This is not gonna work. I mean, again, I know. I I see what people are trying to do, but here's the thing: like before, anyone who's interested in getting books out of libraries that they think are gonna pollute little Jimmy with 21st century ideas about anything is not gonna be like, oh, I see the. You know what? Thank you for that book resume. I see that it got reviewed in the New York Times. It was long listed for the Caldecott. I'm good. Let it go. They're not gonna do that, Rebecca. So what are we doing here? Yeah, I can see ways like these resumes do also include information about how a title has been successfully retained in school districts. So maybe if we're getting into like, here's a way to uh, like sort of in a in a positively nitpicky fashion, like get this book through um, to find some loopholes, I can see how that might be strategically useful. But the rest of this does turn on a logic 
that doesn't exist yes. or really on the assumption that you're dealing with logical actors and most if not all of these attempts to ban books are not built on any kind of logic or any kind of reason they're built on we don't want this thing and that's all i need to know about it is that i don't like it that's and right. so it should not be there there's something Let's um, if get they rid were of interested Exactly. If they were interested, if folks trying to ban books were interested in any kind of civil discourse, in any kind of argument, in having to assess evidence, they would, I don't know, actually read the books that they're objecting to instead of taking hearsay. We would make it a lot harder to, like, school districts would uniformly make it a lot harder to ban these things. There wouldn't be, like, a one-page worksheet with a two-line slot for why do you object to this where someone can just say, I heard it has gay people in it, and that's sufficient to at least get it taken off the shelves while someone evaluates it like this functions inside like these this is a tool to function inside this system that exists and the real solutions as we've been saying are going to come from outside of this system they're going to come from legislative and legal action that you know either makes it against the law to ban books from your schools for school boards to do it for individuals to do it whatever um or that are providing greater protections coming out from the First Amendment for students and teachers. Yep. Um, let's move on to happier things. I don't know that we're going to talk about in detail. <laughs> I'm glad you put it here. I have been saving this Marilyn Robinson interview in the Times, um, much like I have not touched my digital galley of reading Genesis, which I think comes out on uh, the 12th, something like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great. I don't know what to say. I think she... It is great. As a writer who tends to do, she... There's one sentence where she talks about the the state of the U.S. In, in, in particular. And the word she uses, which I would not have used to think of characterizing, and I think it's indicative. It's not wholly encompassing, but it's indicative of a piece of it that I think it's hard to articulate. It's a stinginess. Um, mm-hmm. Stinginess which is usually used in regards to, you know, financial matters of being miserly, but a miserliness in fellow feeling of tolerance, of welcoming of a kind. Yeah. And from that central stinginess, many things have emanated. And I think that resonated with me. And that was just in the first yes. few graphs here. And I don't know what else to yeah. say about the rest. She's a gift. Marilyn Robinson is a gift. This is a wonderful profile. Um, That line about stinginess and something else that she says about being disillusioned by the vulgarity and the mercilessness that have entered public conversation. She says meagerness and unwillingness to be a source of benefit to the people in the country at large. All of that feels true in a way that I hadn't articulated with those words either and feels very it makes a lot of sense coming from Marilyn Robinson <laughs> whose work is populated with a real spirit of generosity and expansiveness about humanity and the centrality of human connections to our happiness our health the functioning of our societies both large and small um just glad to see like Marilyn Robinson she's 80 years old. Mm. She has a lot of wisdom. She's been thinking about things for a long time. And we need wise elders to weigh in. <laughs> more of this, more of the time, please. Plus the fun little anecdote where uh David Mar- Marchese or Marchese, I'm not sure Marchese, how he pronounces it. The Okay. Uh the interviewer is like trying to get Marilyn Robinson to admit to like what naughty thing does she do and he's like come on give me something do you even just like steal ketchup packets right. <laughs> and she's nope 
Like her bad is that she's bad at returning letters and she has even fallen off of being President Obama's pen pal. Like they're not pen palling anymore and it's her fault. <laughs> but she will not what steal a, a ketchup packet. I what just love this. Flex. Right. She seems to regret it, as hmm. I think is probably appropriate. Um, but just a lovely piece. I would really love for Marilyn Robbins. Like, if she had a podcast, could I just listen to this on Sunday mornings? I don't want to go to church the way Marilyn Robinson goes to church, but I would like to go to the church of Marilyn Robinson. Talking about people who could start a cult. It is helpful to have, from time to time, a missive from the semi-reclusive thinkers of the world that are not engaging Mm -hmm. with the week-by-week, minute-by-minute, quarter-by-quarter, cycle-by-cycle hour. Um, Because she's not disinterested or unaware of whatever you want to call them, curling events, politics, or whatever. But she is looking at them from a different perspective. Um, That is is incisive and synthetic and at an engaging remove um, that mm-hmm. has a certain clarity of it, is a, good a clarity that's, yeah. that's, that's useful. Um, and she is not there. She's not interested in being particularly clever. She's not there in, um, in cleverness. I'm not, she's smarter than I will ever be. I'm not saying it's not, she's not there for a joke to make a joke, to make right. a, to There's score no points, yeah. um, to manage her brand. Um, I presume she has had no media training uh, at all. And nor does she need it because she doesn't care no. to say the kinds of things that people would get into trouble for saying um, at the same time. So I'm glad to see her again, as I always am to see. Me would it too. kill me to have a new novel? No. Would, am I grateful <laughs> I'm reading Genesis? Absolutely. I think we have decided to go back and redo housekeeping together. Is that what we decided to do? Okay. All right. Um, did we do a second sponsor break? I, I think we did not. Let me get one in here. Real okay. Quick. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies. And that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate 
or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong, gotta go on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. I'm going to blow past, we, we um, stepped on front list foyer. I'm going to enter into the record, this story about KKR talking about its plans for Simon & Schuster. This mm-hmm. is in Publishers Weekly. Last week, I linked to it there. I, I wanted to have a chance to talk for a minute on the podcast. I thought a couple things were interesting. One, it's Jim Milliot, who's retiring after 30 years at Publishers Weekly. We probably yeah. cited his byline as much. It's Alexander Alter and Jim Milliot, probably. Those are the two that we've shouted out the most doing the... Constance Grady. Yeah, Constance place, Grady. Yeah. yeah, we always I would bring her into the fold as well. Cal Reed, who's now retired as well at Publishers mm-hmm. Weekly. Um, so this was an inter- So he's aggregating with some context, an interview on Bloomberg. Um, that Pete Stavros, who's the co-head of Global Equity KKR, said, they're in no hurry to sell Simon & Schuster. A couple things. That, that, uh, selling a company is that it takes as long as it takes. Five to seven years before it looks to a new home. So for those of you who don't know, what p and generally does is take an asset they think is undervalued, either because it's not being run well, or sometimes if it's a subsidiary, I think in this case, of a, of a larger company where its full value is not being recognized because it's drowned out by everything else that's going on. They take it, they polish it up, they shine it up, they replace parts, and usually, usually means cutting some staff. It just does, usually. Mm -hmm. Not always, but usually. Um, And then get ready to sell to someone else who is in the market for a refurbished Porsche. They don't want to refurbish the Porsche themselves, but they're interested in having a refurbished Porsche. Um, And that's what they do. So... And that they thought this was a neglected gem. We talked about this before. That looking at the numbers, SNS was profitable. They were making money, um, for sure. Uh, it's been one of the most profitable large publishers of late. And there's other ways they can do. So I think they're going to sell this thing in five to seven years, and we're going to be right back to square one about what to do with SNS and conglomeration and who's going to buy it. We're going to be right back to, I guess it's going to depend who's in the White House. Um, and you know what mm-hmm. else? The DOJ or the FTC or the FCC? I'm not even sure who covers these things anymore. Um, see my earlier discourse on the West Virginia State Legislature for my um, canniness with uh, political comings and goings. But we're going to be right back here, and the world will not have changed. Yep. Nothing will have changed about yep. SNS. So I, I, I put it unto you: Is this something we are excited to see? Are we going? Is it? Is the world going to be any different, or are we going to be right back to where we were with PRH? Is like, well, I can't buy that because the last time it cost us a couple billion dollars. So I can't imagine getting waiting <laughs> back into that pool. So that leaves you within a bunch of other publishers where like Macmillan is going to absorb. They're going to try to buy them or HarperCollins, like, or they're going to be sold. They're going to be have an IPO and they're going to be a publicly traded publishing house, which I think is a bad idea, frankly, mm-hmm. because of the way growth mm-hmm. and profitability and. Su- I just don't right. know what else there is. Maybe some other holding company. Maybe they do sell it to someone's like, I don't really like to refurbish stuff, but if you give me a profitable company that's turning out a 7% margin every year, I will give you a fair price for it that's more than you paid for it, and now it's part yeah. of this other kind of thing. So I, I don't even it's, know what publishing uh, – publishing the kinds of people who have big opinions about what companies <laughs> should do with themselves. 
I don't think people understand generally. There's not a lot of good answer here. There's no magic answer that's going to no. make SNS independent and owned by itself just because right. you want it to be that way. Right. And somehow magically free of all of the trappings of corporate capitalism. Yeah, or, or macroeconomic <laughs> yeah. trends or the market they're in or whatever. Right. Yeah, I don't think that this is terribly exciting now. It was, I mean, it was interesting what was going yeah. on with PRH and Simon and Schuster. How the court was going to decide that was an interesting question to follow. But I don't think anyone is excited about a future sale other than KKR, which will make mm-hmm. the money, and whoever merges or buys Simon and Schuster and the money that they stand to make from it. Everybody else will be on some scale of like, eh to really upset Um, authors will I think authors are just going to continue to be rightfully concerned that consolidation means fewer opportunities for them Uh, folks who want to work in publishing will continue to be concerned that consolidation will mean fewer opportunities for them to work in publishing none of those things are right or wrong companies do what they do and nobody has an unassailable right to work in the industry that they want Right. to work in. Um, it's not the industry doing something wrong to you or, or, or a corporation doing something wrong to you when they merge with someone else and then a future possible opportunity is no longer future possible. This feels like this is just going to be the conversation that we're going to have for a while of like publishing is trying to consolidate. Publishing is continuing to try to consolidate, but we're out of big players. They can't merge with the biggest one. Yeah. Which and, kind of means that none of the rest of the stories are all that interesting. So Simon & Schuster goes and merges with some smaller publisher. Okay. And let me tell you another thing. KKR is not going to be happy with, we got 15% more for SNS right. than we, we paid for it. It's going to be expensive. It's right. going to be I mean, right. multiple billion dollars times multiple billion dollars. It's still multiple billions of dollars. There's not a lot yes. of people in publishing that can absorb that. And interest rates are high right yeah, now. I guess that might be a different kind of a situation. Maybe in five to seven years, you know, interest rates are lower, so it's easier for someone to take on the debt. But I, 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 I just, I just don't see it. I really don't It'll understand be, what's going to happen. Yeah, I think the thing I'm most interested in about this will be what does KKR do with sort of the boots on the ground functioning of Simon and Schuster as they make it more profitable? Does some of that money get returned to employees in the form of higher pay? Do they invest in more diverse pipelines of both material and staffing? Are they using some of that money to kind of try to do the things that we want books to do in the world? Or will it tilt more towards the stereotypical understanding of private equity that we're just generating more profit for the sake of more profit? All of those things are possible. Um, the second one is definitely the rule. The like read on it that the internet discourse had around like oh my god these private equity guys look what they're going to do um i don't think they have any intention to like to gut simon and schuster or to ruin publishing they've been very clear about that but like the point of private equity uh, as as you were saying in the top of the show unless you're warren buffett Mm -hmm. is acquire it build it make it more valuable sell it make your money yeah they're house flippers and that's what they're going to do right that's what they're going to do um -hmm. says um they have this ownership plan where you get a stake in the company, and if it sells eventually for more, then you get the, you know, there's a lot of ways this can be structured. So mm-hmm. some of that would be returned to employees that probably vest or whatever. It's a way of motivating them, so it's, motivating them, so it's yeah. worth more, not that you're just like working hard so that someone else can make even more money than they already made. That's a pretty hard thing, I would imagine, mm-hmm. to, to work at. Um, <laughs> it's, you know... 
say they're going to try to do some science to predict which books are going to sell. That reminded me. How many? How long have we been Good hearing luck. about this? Have we heard one person say, you know what? We got this analytics platform and these packages, and it turns out we know how to do this. Have we heard any? I mean, I, I ask unto no. the listeners of the internet, can you show me the story where some publishers say, you know, we have all these analytics platforms, and they've really paid off, and we learned that yellow covers of Women with Daisies on May 9th sell better, and we're, we're killing it. Because we hear about this, we use data and analytics to see and mm-hmm. consumer insights. And as far as I can tell, there's a grand total of squat to show for it. Yes. It's a very Wizard of Oz, the wizard is just a man standing behind yeah. a curtain feeling when publishers talk about this stuff. Because I think part of it is there are so many possible data points about That's a book. Right. When did it come out? What else was coming out? What genre was it? What did the cover look like? You know, how long is it? Is the author famous? Did it get on TikTok? There's so many variables. And publishing is not keeping detailed data about the books they publish along those variables. Like the closest that we can get are the like very filtered down like is it BISAC like ISBN codes where you're like maybe this is memoir about stuff. food I heard some stuff that Random yeah. House maybe has a tool they use I don't know what it entails maybe there but as far as I can tell most of the time it's hey romanticy or what about lady yeah. spies or how about stuff about book clubs in World War II I'm not kidding <laughs> Like right. then you see yeah. a bunch of them, but or, I don't think you need right. you know Google Gemini AI Supreme Plus with Nvidia no. chips in it. Put girl in the title just to see yeah. like you know what's selling now. Let's do more of that because well, have fun predicting. How about the thing that's not just dovetailing yes. off something else? That'd be super interesting. Right. We 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 the, learned there's a market for mushroom hunting. Uh, I don't know backpackers. Who also play the banjo, and it'd be like that'd be the one that I'd like to see. It's like something that's way out of scale. That's like didn't have get human level like duh quality to it. Because everything mm-hmm. I see is like me too, me too stuff. Because I don't think lessons in chemistry. I mean, look at the things that sold. That was an editor saying, "This is amazing. I'm going to help Bonnie Garmus write this." And it turned right. out they were right. Or tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Or stuff gets picked right. up on Book Talk. Have fun with that algorithm because it changed. Anyway, I, I've had yeah, enough of it's, this. By, Right. Me too. And and even I've just I've said it like several weeks in a row. I am so tired of the fact that all the romance novels look the same. Yeah. Like there's just a point. You don't where this need isn't helping you. an algorithm with a bunch of like chips being water cooled by by, you know, ice lakes to figure out that yeah. this is what people are and, buying now. And the books that sold the most in 2023 are books that came out in 2022 and 2021. And so which if means they were acquired in 2019 at the right. earliest. If we are still acquiring books in 2024 based on what's been selling, then we're talking about acquisitions inspired by books that were acquired five years ago and that won't be published for two more years. And to assume that the thing that worked then will continue to be working two or three years in the future is a big assumption and it doesn't typically pay off. And my favorite hobby horse example of this is we still have not gotten the next Gone Girl. (laughs) We're not going to. Yeah. Like, and, and, these things are singular and special because they're singular and special. And maybe there's niche stuff. Maybe we're looking too macro and down micro. There are, I don't know, chili crisp cookbooks. Remember that thing that was like on the Barnes and Noble yeah, yes, thing? Like yeah. maybe mm-hmm. that was something that's like, you know what? I We see there's a lot of talk online about chili crisp. Let's do a chili crisp cookbook. 
I, I guess that's possible when it comes to the the books that even sniff the mainstream of American life, and ain't many of them that are within the nose of that, they resist any attempts, as has always been I mean, the case, to yeah, prescribe, about, predict, or or dictate their success. The biggest like book moments, cultural book moments of our shared reading yes. consciousness are The Da Vinci Code, Fifty Shades of Grey, Twilight, Twilight, now you've got this romanticy stuff. And yeah, and all of those are things that like when they came out, people were like, listen to this. Yeah. Can you believe that this is yeah. the thing right. that is so big? Like I remember Dan Brown on all the morning talk shows for like months when the Da Vinci Code came out. And it was the same story around Fifty Shades of Grey. It's kind of been the same story around Colleen Hoover. We're starting to see the same thing around mm-hmm. Sarah J. Moss those were not predictable. <laughs> Nobody was like, you know, this is going to be huge. Yeah. And I, I just, uh, and, and I don't know, maybe there's things I don't understand about this, but it, I think the stuff like we want to have better editors. So authors want to come to us. Now that mm-hmm. makes sense to me. Yes. We want to yes. have better infrastructure to reduce returns. Now that makes sense to me. The yada, yada, AI predictive, big data stuff. We just haven't seen a company do that. We haven't seen someone come out that can do stuff like this. Yeah, I think if you've got somebody being like, we can guarantee you that we're going to market your book into being a bestseller, that's a real moment to take a pause and ask them how. Um, And if it's anything other than we're going to spend a jillion dollars to make it unavoidable and there's just a point at which a public, a marketing campaign will be successful because you've put so much money into it, then I don't believe them. Like there's, there is not a formula for this. People are not doing this successfully with a formula. Yeah. And some of these examples that we're citing, like Colleen Hoover and 50 shades of gray publishing did not recognize Twice. the potential in those Twice first, right? It. Both of those <laughs> authors self published yeah. before published before mainstream publishing houses picked them up. So if publishing was like any good at guessing what the next big thing is going to be, we would have gotten on those. <laughs> and I'm not saying that they should be able to do it. What I'm saying is I don't think it's possible. No, I'm not saying they're doing it I, wrong. I, I, I think yeah, it's exactly. a thing that cannot right. be done. I don't think it exists. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Or yeah. the best and the best thing to do is try to write interest, try to publish interesting things that you think people are going to like run your business sustainably so that you can wait a while and you're not, re- you're not just crossing your fingers and hoping to strike it rich just because, you know, do the infrastructure things. I mean, frankly, a lot of times these private equity people do a good job with these companies. It's because whoever was running it before them did not care or was an idiot or was mm-hmm. corrupt. I'm not kidding about this. There are th- yeah, th- yeah. That happens all the time. Um, and probably just by saying we care that SNS is a better company and able to stand on its own and be attractive to someone else, it will be run better. It will be. Mm-hmm. So I don't think you need to like say yeah AI. I mean they're they're the the con the um, dismissive of AI, but this I don't know why that it's one line about a little <laughs> more science. It feels like those are. I always feel yeah. the little more science people when it comes like, to cultural products do not understand what makes culture right. culture. There's a butterfly think, effect thing here. Yes, that the culture is chaos theory. It is. It is not big right. data. It just isn't. It's. Most of what happens in books and publishing is an art, and I think we should talk about that, and we should celebrate it, and we should explore what that looks like, and it does make this form of art and expression different from something like 
network television where that's a little more predictable and it is more of the same you know like the big bang theory was big for what 15 years and so let's give them young sheldon and that was successful well i think publishing (laughs) does that though that's the james pattersons of the world i mean not for nothing like a lot of the money is made off that but in terms of but that's not science that's like you got lucky with one and you made a brand out of it like i I don't understand what science doesn't have anything to do with that so anyway it, it got me thinking again so I think both on one side and the other, I'm like, KKR is not what you think. KKR is not, mm-hmm. I do not believe, um, a big oil type company, a strip miner. I don't think it's like that. Could be, right. could be wrong. I also don't think they are, you know, uh, some secret skunk work team at McKinsey that's got a skeleton keys to figuring this out that other people don't <laughs> right. have. Right. Yeah. And they don't seem interested or intent on like selling Simon & Schuster for parts. No. I don't know how you would sell it for parts. I mean, when you break it right down, what is a publishing company? Their essential asset is the intellectual rights they have to books they've published and their ability to do more. There's not a lot Mm -hmm. of assets. It's like, how are you going to break off Stephen, the rights to Stephen King? I don't understand how that would happen. (laughs) Right. It's wild. I think the objections to KKR are primarily really objections to the idea and existence of private Uh, equity. Or or corporations at all, frankly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which again, and those are fair yeah. in to a, right. to a to a degree, but you know these are these are the world we live in for now, right? Uh, Not operating in the realm of reality yeah, for this industry, the, the proximally plausible um, to some degree. All right, uh, I guess I got head up about that a little bit. That's our show, <laughs> bookride.com slash listen. Do you want to check out the show notes and see what's there? You can check the Patreon, patreon.com slash bookride podcast. Uh, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Come. Got two new episodes of First Edition coming out next week. How about that? Interviews Ooh, lined up. Rebecca, help those? me get some people. Uh, well, should I say? So we're going to do one on e-readers. Give us one tease. Yeah, one on e-readers. Save Eaters of Jason Snell, which I've had in the can for a couple weeks, but I've been sick and everything got mm. in the way. Um, but then I have some stuff around the 40th anniversary of House on Mango Street coming out. Ooh, you have some exciting. authors with books coming out pretty mm-hmm. soon. One, Some you've heard of. Some that are, you know, <laughs> people we've talked about on the show, possibly. So uh, you'll, I will, do not worry. I will not be remiss in plugging those <laughs> once they were alive. But thank you for the opportunity to say a little something about Great. them. Rebecca, I'm going to talk to you in five minutes about yep. something else. Deals, baby, deals. Deals, baby. Mm-hmm.